I used to think I needed to be like, let's say 52 kilos to like be at my race weight. But it turns out, you know, I've run probably my best time when I'm like 56. I don't even remember when I weighed myself the last time and I don't care what I eat. Someone can look so fit and be so unhealthy and someone can not look fit and be really like fast and really healthy. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCubbin. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian, Steph Gaskell. How are things with you this week, Steph? You're inching towards getting that last study finished for your PhD? Uh, I'm so close, so close. Um, <laughs> I had, I think, you know, I had a participant, unfortunately, um, have to uh, cancel, but thankfully we've still got their data for one part of the study, but it meant I was madly recruiting, uh, recruiting for, yeah, for, for the last mail. And um, thankfully, um, I've got a, a previous um, participant that um, wants to come back. So I'm not that mean if, um, you know, people want to come to our studies. We're not that mean. We do have people coming back. Um, and uh yeah so i'm getting close alan i'm hoping mid mid to late november all going well still yeah very nice yeah excellent what are you going to do with yourself once that's done i guess a lot of data analysis i've got a lot of data analysis yeah um and um we're doing a bit of collaborating we're working with um some electrophysiologists down in at Flinders Uni in Adelaide. They're going to help us with some of the the um, data we're processing. Um, so yeah, and and writing. I just I'm really looking forward to being able to just kind of. I say I'm looking forward to it. When I do it, I might not be looking forward to it. Um, but just to to focus, you know, without so many distractions. Um, I think that's what every researcher says when they're in the lab collecting data. They're like, oh, I can't wait till I've finished collecting this data. Yeah. And then six weeks later, oh, oh I wish I was back in the lab and not yeah. writing and doing, yeah. you know, spreadsheets and stats and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But I just need a little bit of good time with it and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. And you're enjoying the, the warmer weather that we've had in Melbourne recently as well. You've been hitting up that gelato place that you mentioned a few weeks ago. Yeah, well, they haven't um, come by and, um, you know, offered to sponsor me. But um, I, I, um, I'm I, happy to still go there and um, purchase it myself. Uh, I've been hitting the pool. Um, and this is pretty funny, Al. Um, I went with Kato because uh, she's still rehabbing her injury. And um, anyway, like, so we're water running, right? So you've got the, the mm. belt on you and stuff. And Kate's always probably like nearly lapping me. And then she's like, all right, I'm going to get the kickboard um, and I'm going to um, do some kicking. And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 cool. I'll, I'll do that too. And I knew this happened a long time ago. But Al, I don't actually move forwards. I go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so my feet and my ankles are that bloody immobile um, that my, like, there's no, um, what do you say, plantar, plantar flexion. Like, it's just, like, it's, it's straight up. And so I actually reverse when I'm kicking. 
And so when you say Cato, this is your housemate, Kate, who was on episode 16B of the podcast looking around injury. So she's still on the mend. She's still on the mend. And um, my sister called me today and she told me that she uh, has ruptured her Achilles. Oh, that's a nasty one. Yeah, I'm around all people that are injuring themselves at the moment. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed that your hamstring stays on the bone. Yeah, well, thankfully, apparently this is a rupture that the sports doctor actually hasn't seen before. It was a real nice, clean one Mm. um, because it wasn't done with a lot of, I think, power or momentum. Um, Yeah, he's actually said, like, no surgery, just um, for now 12 weeks in the moon boot and, you know, we'll monitor you throughout. But, um, Mm. yeah, and Carmen didn't think it was anything too significant, like it hurt, but not like she'd heard people describe it Mm. um so yeah Mm. that's that's not good anyway enough about me alan what about you what's been happening in your world um just enjoying the better weather i think yeah i've been taking the kids to the beach a couple of times we've still got this sort of staggered return to school as we come out of lockdown here in melbourne so we've got you know one kid at school what part of the day and one kid you know other days of the week and then so you know today was probably the best day we've had so far so finished school and straight down to the beach which was nice yeah um so yeah enjoying that and uh being able to get out and about a little bit more which is nice yeah would have been busy down the beach yeah yeah uh it wasn't too bad but yeah we're starting to get busy when we're leaving yeah yeah but um you know other than that just preparing i got a uh, a webinar for um the nutrition society of australia on friday um, around sodium um, recommendations for athletes and some of the the, the mathematical modelling stuff we talked about a couple of uh, a couple of times recently because um, I presented that at the conference uh, a couple yeah. of weeks ago uh, and then sort of adding to that for for this presentation and hopefully getting inching towards you know something that we can make a bit more quantifiable in terms of sodium guidelines for athletes during exercise because there currently really isn't any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's cool. Awesome. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, here on The Long Munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask, sort of things that people are often debating uh, within their their running groups or their their training squads. Um, And we break those down, invite a guest expert in our A episode and an athlete or coach in our B episode to give their perspective on the particular question. Um, And so today's episode is episode 23B, and our question is, does Lena equal faster? Uh, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Izzy Bat-Doyle, 5,000-metre runner from the Tokyo Olympics uh, for the Australian team. And, um, yeah, great to get her perspective on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Izzy um, comes from the beautiful city of uh, Adelaide. You have to always add that in every single time, don't you? Just have to. You know he comes from Adelaide, don't you? Some amazing people. Like Izzy. (laughs) And someone called um, Steph Gaskell. Oh yeah. (laughs) No, know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard of her. her. She does some podcasts. He does. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, this is our 46th episode in total because mm. obviously we have our A's and our B's and we've even occasionally had a C and a D episode. Um, and so we're really looking forward to our 50th episode coming up soon. And again, we're not going to reveal who our special guest is, mm. um, but let's say the episode is less about a question like all our other episodes. It's a bit of a special one where we're just going to look at one particular, I guess, 
amazing sporting feat, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the underlying science and nutrition behind that particular sporting feat. Um, so I think we'll leave it at that, leave everyone in suspense a little bit. But, um, yeah, really looking forward to, to that 50th episode, which will be coming up in a few weeks' time. Yep, yep. And we've also got some social media shout-outs. Um, if, so if anyone has a question that they'd like answered on the podcast, you can feel free to hit us up on social media at The Long Munch via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, um, as Kate Galash did this week, Steph. Yeah, yeah. She um, she likes last week's um, rant, Alan, about um, I believe that was you talking about, you know, that statement of, um, oh, gee, you know, you're looking you're looking fit um, and, yes, yeah, you know, she's come across that statement as well and, and seen it not being so positive. Um, mm. So, yeah, um, I think that was that was a, um, a rant that I think would have connected to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to remind people, it was basically along the lines of, well, you know, what people look like doesn't necessarily tell you anything about their health or fitness necessarily and we need to get away from this um, associating a certain physical appearance with your know, health or fitness because it not isn't necessarily the case. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll wait till after our interview with Izzy, but um, we've got a really nice example that you saw on Instagram this week, Steph, which I think we might read out at mm. the end because it's a, a really classic example of this mm. uh, and a really good lesson and I think a really nice follow-up from both Gary's podcast last week but also what Izzy's going to talk about this week as well. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get on and introduce Izzy. So, Steph, do you want to tell us a little bit about Izzy Bat-Doyle before we get into the interview? Yeah, yeah, sure. Izzy, um, she's she um, in probably like she's, I mean, she's been running sort of since she was younger and her family, you know, have a background in, in running. But it wasn't until probably like, 2020 2021 when she she came out with some really significant um pbs um which were over like 3000 meters 5000 meters and also on the road um she ended up coming second in zatapec um 10000 meters um, i remember that race i remember seeing it and going who on earth is that yeah that's easy mm. um yep. so yeah, um, and then in late May 2021, she um, she that's when she ran an Olympic um, 5,000 meter qualifier, um, and um, and then that um, that obviously then now she's recently returned from from the Olympics, um, competing in in the um, distance over there, um, but. During her running career, she's, I guess, unfortunately experienced, um, I guess, some of the lows that come from, um, come from whether it come from just uh, running as an elite level athlete or professional level athlete, but even just as an amateur athlete, we, we experience lows in, in, what, we, in what we're doing. Um, and unfortunately, she experienced six stress fractures um, in her in her foot um, while she was over in the um, over in the US um, over there for a scholarship. So we're going to find out a bit more about what may have led to that and her experiences over there. Um, and um, and and just about some of I guess like 
some upsetting and and a bit of poor culture I think that that um, was in the athletic program for her when she was over there um, mm. and how she kind of um, best managed best managed that and how, how it affected her so um, yeah we're really lucky to have Izzy um, and we're talking to her um, on the on the topic that um, is following on from when we had Gary Slater um, as the as the researcher which is does um, leaner equal um, faster yeah absolutely and I guess it is one of those really common questions that every athlete sort of asks themselves at, at some stage um, you know whether it's a recreational athlete who just wonders whether they should be deliberately trying to lose a bit of weight to go into their first ever marathon or fun run or something um, or you know riding peaks or you know a charity event or you know someone like Izzy at the elite level thinking, you know, is that something that's going to help me get that little bit more performance for myself? Yeah, super common. Mm. And like even like, um, you know, um, if you're running in a a group um, and then quite often like, you know, people can see and they they see the – the peers and they might have like this leaner physique and then they're worried and they're like, yeah, well, maybe should I be leaner um, and will that, you know, make running easier for me? Um, so mm. it's a really common common question and it's not always tackled um, or thought about in perhaps the, the best way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, just before we start this interview, a little bit of a trigger warning. Uh, This interview does discuss a lot of topics around weight, dieting, body fat loss, uh, and also some issues around body image, disordered eating, and eating disorders. So this may be a topic that a lot of people find quite uncomfortable, quite confronting, um, or if they've had a a past history of disordered eating or eating disorders, um, be potentially quite traumatic in some cases as well. So just a warning that that's what's covered in this interview. So you may choose not to listen to it for that reason, and that's absolutely fine. Um, You can always listen to other episodes of the podcast that are completely unrelated to body composition or or body image. Uh, If you uh, do listen to this interview and you um, feel particularly triggered by it or uh, have some strong emotions around it, you can obviously get support. Uh, If it's around body body image or or eating, uh, there's the Butterfly Foundation in Australia that you can get in contact with for support around that. Uh, If it's around um, sort of mood or or anxiety in general, then you can speak to Lifeline or Beyond Blue and organisations like that. Obviously, we can't list all the organisations in all the countries where listeners might be listening to it from. Uh, So you can obviously look up uh, whichever organisations might be able to provide that kind of support to you in those countries. But yes, obviously, there's been a lot of... um, practices from coaches that have been quite harmful in a range of sports and we're hearing more and more about that over the last few years so um, that includes sports like athletics for example which we're discussing today so yeah again if you feel that you might be triggered by this or find it quite confronting you may choose not to listen to this interview all right well let's get into this interview with Izzy um, she was really uh, open and, and honest with you know her assessment of you know how she's sort of tackled this question over the years uh, and I guess how it's been relevant to her career so um, yeah I think without further ado we'll go into the interview now let's do it all right welcome um, Izzy Bat Doyle to the Long Munch podcast um, how are you today what's what's been happening this morning 
Thanks so much. I'm honored to be on. Um, not a whole lot. I did my morning run and then got a blood test done. Um, and it's yet yeah, sunny today, so things are looking up here in Adelaide, but it's not quite feeling like um, proper summer weather yet, which I'm very much looking forward to. Yes, yes. Um, and so, yeah, so we know you live in the beautiful city of, of Adelaide in South Australia, um, which is my hometown, so I'm a bit biased. I try and get um, a lot of you guys on the, on the podcast. Um, can you tell us what the running environment um, is like in Adelaide? Because I know there's, there's a lot of um, great runners um, born and bred there. We've, we've had one on already, Jessica um, Trengove. Yeah, Adelaide's great for running. I'm, I feel very like lucky to have grown up here and um, have all the running spots um, as part of my weekly training. Um, a lot of the time I just run from home because I can get about 3Ks um, from my house onto um, into the parklands. And then once I'm there, it's all relatively flat and um, yeah, beautiful parklands, bike paths uh, along the River Torrens. Um, really love running along there, which is lovely. I'm also kind of at the foothills in Adelaide, so I can either go down towards the parklands and stay pretty flat or I can kind of go the other way into the hills and get quite an um, undulating run. Um, I must say I usually opt for going down towards the flat. Um, when I was younger, I did a lot of my running um, through the foothills um, and through, yeah, the lovely kind of trails there. But as I've progressed as a runner, my sessions are a little more intense and those jog days between sessions need to be a little easier. So I just tend to stick to the flat, um, but there's yeah, plenty of options in the parklands. And um, as I said, I run from home a lot of the time, but if I wanted to drive, you know, 10, 20 minutes, there are tons of other spots you go to. And um, every now and again, I head down to the beach and have a coastal run as well along the front there. So yeah, plenty of good running here. And if you want to get out um, 30 or 40 minutes, you can get into Kaipo Forest or mm. other lovely areas, which is soft underfoot and uh, yeah, hopefully be a bit dry soon and might get out there for a long run. I've gotten lost there plenty of times because <laughs> you just kind of be like, there's a cool trail, let's follow yeah, that. And absolutely. then you're like, where am I? <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, great running there. Um, so you come, come from a family of runners. Um, can you tell us a bit about, I guess, your background into, into running? Yeah, so my parents were always pretty active people when I was growing up. Um, they were doing half marathons, triathlons, that kind of thing, um, just recreationally. Um, and when I was about eight or nine years old, I ran the city to bay for the first time, the six-kilometre race with my stepdad and held his hand the whole way and had a blast and got my photo in the paper and, you know, I really enjoyed it. And I think that was about the same time that I started doing little athletics. So about when I was nine years old, I went out to little athletics um, because my sister, older sister, Emmy, she's two and a half years older than me. She was heading out there and enjoying it. So naturally I followed, followed along. Um, and yeah, I guess that's where my um, running career started out there and just progressed from there. Yep. Yep. And um, can you tell us a, a bit about, um, I know you went over to the US um, for a college scholarship. What was that like? And do you think that, that doing that has helped your running career? Yeah, so I guess to give some context, like um, in SA when I was a junior, um, I wasn't necessarily winning the races here. I was maybe coming second or third. Um, and, you know, I was a good runner. I was making state teams since I was 11 years old for cross country and then um, on the track. Uh, but when, once I got to those national meets, usually I was middle of the pack or, you know, just happy to be there and having fun. And uh, it wasn't until probably year 11 that um, I got a little more serious and I think I came third at um, a national 
3K um, and then the following year I was second in the um, under-20 steeplechase national championships um, and that kind of springboarded um, the opportunities to go to college in America and take up an athletic scholarship. Um, and for me, it was just a way of extending my running um, career and taking up an opportunity to get my degree paid for and live somewhere else mm. for a few years. Um, I just really thought it was an incredible experience that I couldn't pass up. And so at 18 years old, I moved over to New York and started a place called St. John's University. It was so much fun. Like I loved it. But um, essentially, I'd left Adelaide because I was, you know, felt like a big fish in a small pond. And um, then I got to St. John's and it turns out I was the best on the team there already. And um, it wasn't quite the challenge that I wanted. So mm -hmm. as much as I loved New York, I then transferred um, after a year and a half to the University of Washington, which is in Seattle, Washington. So opposite side of the country, went from East Coast to West Coast. Um, and then I spent the next well, I was, I was over in America for five years in total, so the next um, four years there, um, which was awesome. And I, um, I went from being eighth best on the team when I got there to, you know, finally improving to getting to, um, you know, best on the team by my last year. But um, it was a journey and it was filled with a lot of ups and downs, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more um, in the chat today. But um, it definitely made me a better honor going to America. I think if I had have stayed in Adelaide, I probably would have um, – given up or moved away from competitive running. Uh, I just didn't really have the um, the kind of network here at the time in terms of coaching and medical and that kind of thing to set me up to move on from juniors into seniors. And I think that that's kind of an issue we have in Australia is, you know, really good juniors and then it's not really a whole ton of support for people transitioning through that phase mm -hmm. and you're either kind of like a junior or then like you're a professional runner. There's not really a lot to support you through that middle phase. So going to America is pretty cool because you can get trained like a professional athlete but get your degree paid for, um, get a lot of racing experience and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You don't have an American accent. so <laughs> I actually listened to a video of myself on my phone like, from about two years ago and I couldn't believe how I sounded because I had a bit of a twang at the time. So I'm glad to hear it. I've been home for almost two years now, I think, um, which is a bit crazy to think that's that long. Um, but yeah, definitely while I was over there, I, I picked up some um, phrases and kind of lingo that probably made me sound a little bit blended, but definitely yeah. happy to be sounding Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it, it uh, sounds like you did have perhaps a, a rough couple of years from, was it about like 2017 where I think you experienced six stress fractures in your feet? Mm, yeah, so there was a space of two years um, um, from 2017 to 2019 that I had six stress fractures in my feet. Um, but unfortunately, um, pretty much as soon as I got to Washington, um, it was probably quite an increase in my training and just the environment being so competitive and um, every session felt like, you know, you were trying to earn your spot on the team, earn your spot for the next race. Um, so it really did pick up, um, I guess, the intensity a lot when I went to Washington um, and I loved it. But I remember my first Wednesday run there um, just being like hanging on for dear life, you know, <laughs> just thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm not sure if I can do 10 miles at this pace. Um but yeah, so essentially that first year, 2016, like I was running really well. I'd run 10.02 for the steeplechase and was like, you know, having a crack at it and um, got a few niggles in my lower legs that never really, I never got scans. I'm not really sure what they were, but it kind of set my season um, 
off a bit earlier than would have been and then coming into cross-country season in 2016 I had a few more ongoing niggles and I think that they were treated like um, positive tendon stuff but it could have actually been stress related but I never got those scanned but it wasn't until yeah so it's had an interrupted even my first year there but it wasn't until the following year 2017 um, that yeah I had um, it was one cross-country race. It was actually the national championships for cross-country. Um, and about three k's into the race, I just felt my foot go. Mm. And it turns out um, I finished the race. It was a 6K race. Um, but after that race, I was on crutches and in a boot and I had four different bones mm. in my foot that were broken. So my navicular wow. and three-minute tarsals in the same left foot. Um, so I didn't run for about four months. Mm. And that was a really challenging period for me because I was um, living alone. Mm. Uh, in a studio apartment by myself obviously away from my family um and um it was a difficult time in terms of the culture and um the coaching stuff um there at the time and yeah just just a challenging period it was winter in seattle so it was snowing and raining and i was crutching mm. around campus you know just struggling <laughs> mm. um but yeah that was probably one of the darkest points um in my running career so far mm. yeah it's tough um and um Something, um, I guess, a bit more positive. In in late May, <laughs> you ran an Olympic 5,000-metre qualifier in a time of 15 minutes and 4 and 10. You then remained yeah. in Europe until the Olympics um, due to, I guess, otherwise having to spend a two-week sort of COVID mm-hmm. quarantine um, period. Um, how was that? Yeah, amazing. So I guess, I guess, get more background on this uh, season. I went into the season um, with a personal best of 1541. Um, and so last year, November, I think I ran, I ran 1540 to start the season. And uh, then I ran 1526 in December. And then I ran 1511 in March. I missed the qualifying time by one second. And mm-hmm. Um, the season was kind of drying up at that stage, the domestic season in Australia, and the decision had to be made, um, you know, did I want to just risk getting in on points and hoping that I would make the team just based on points because I was um, close to that mark and in the top three in Australia, um, or did I want to go overseas and have a crack at the time? And I made the choice to get on a plane to Europe, um, knowing that I would be away for at least three months um, whether or not I made the Olympics or not, it was kind of like you had to be away for that certain um, time to get the exemption to travel and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it was a big risk and, you know, um, there was a lot to it, but I knew it was the most important thing for me to do and I didn't want to look back and regret um, not making a choice like that. And I was very happy because a week into the trip um, in, the, in the Netherlands, in Nijmegen, I won my first race and ran, yeah, 15.04, so that was a six six seconds under the qualifying time and a seven second PB. So I was stoked and like to win the race too in Europe, like pretty cool. Um, Mm. So that was probably definitely the highlight of my running career so far. Um, And to know that that was going to put me on the plane to Tokyo was, um, was pretty cool. I didn't get a confirmation for another month later, um, but that was kind of the moment that I knew that, yeah, I was going to be an Olympian. Mm, Awesome. Just a quick question on, I guess, improving times over that period. I mean, we saw, I guess, the back end of 2020, the start of 2021, like the amount of people that came out of that sort of lockdown period and just had these amazing results, you know, not just in Australia, but elsewhere, you know, national records were just falling left, right and centre, and particularly in those kind of middle distance events where, you, where you're competing. What, what's your take on that? Because obviously, like it was it was pretty obvious that, that that sort of happened both in the men's and the women's and across multiple distances. Do you put that down to anything in particular? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think that um, it's definitely true that we saw a lot of that happening. And for me personally, um, I've come back from another injury. Um, even January 2020, I'd had a scan in my foot and this was another stress fracture that I'd been off running for six months um, because of that one in my calcaneus. Um, and the silver lining with COVID was that I took a step back and just didn't even think about racing and I just got healthy and it wasn't like, oh, I need to be healthy for that race or like in a month's time or in two months' time or in three weeks' time. It was just like I'm going to be healthy when I'm healthy um, and I'm going to let my body like do what it needs to do and I just really enjoyed training. Like um, I remember that in that time like Riley and I were going for different routes running, you know, up hills, like exploring having fun and just like kind of mixing things up so i think for a lot of people probably in the same boat like just really um taking a step back not having the pressure of racing just enjoying their training um getting getting consistent training in for me it was the first time i had a full year of consistent training because i kept getting injured so i'm sure there are a lot of people who are similar to me who just you know they got a full year of training done and then when they were able to race it all came together um that's definitely what i experienced and what i imagine um, might have been the case for a lot of other people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we talked with someone else about this a few weeks ago that, you know, sometimes I think, um, you know, that pressure to race, 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 you know, no matter mm. what the distance or, or the, the sport, um, yeah, it does detract because you've got to try and hold that form over that period of time. Or as you said, you know, you're trying to uh, peak at times where maybe you're, you're really not ready to peak and, and the risk is you go over that edge. Absolutely. And that's probably one of the reasons I think why, um, I was in such an injury cycle in college is because essentially we were racing every second week. Um, and, you know, you felt like you had to race because you're on scholarship. Like it was kind of like why you were there and you didn't want to let the team down. You, wanted, you know, you, you wanted to race. And um, in normal times, like back in Australia, if, if you had something going on, you know, you had a sore foot or a sore ankle, you probably just wouldn't race um, yep. unless it was, you know, a really important one. But we just kept had every second week, you know, you just line up, you race, you get it done. Um, and that kind of, um, yeah, means that you get injured more more often probably. Mm, yeah, and I guess even at professional level with sponsor, like with sponsorships, like pressure to race a certain number of mm -hmm. races a year and that kind of thing can still be an issue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how was it performing on the big stage at the Olympics? Yeah, so it was... It was pretty amazing, obviously, um, to put the Australian kit on and to, you know, be at the Olympics. Um, it was, I must admit, a little bit strange. Um, I don't have anything to compare it to. I know a lot of people who I was with who've been at London or Rio were kind of saying, you know, this isn't what it's normally like. Like, hopefully you get another shot. Um, but, yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I was only in the village um, for six days. We were kind of in and out um, just because of all the COVID restrictions and had so many COVID tests and paperwork and all that stuff to get there. Um but once I finally got my got my kit, got to open that, you know, put it on, it did feel like it actually was happening. Um, all the way in the lead up, it's kind of felt like, is this really happening? Because, you know, I qualified overseas, didn't get to celebrate with my friends and family at home. And um, it was just kind of like go to the next thing, next race um, and, you know, do the paperwork, do the COVID test, try and get here make sure that you get to the start line. Um, but, yeah, it was incredible and, like, actually lining up on the stadium and just, like, that moment, you know, when it all kind of hits you that you've made it and it's, you know, a dream come true to be on that start line. Um, it's a very cool feeling, but um, I just wish it could have been a little bit better conditions for a 5K or a 10K race. Um, it was very humid and quite 
quite challenging out there, um, but nonetheless such an amazing experience to compete at that level. And um, I learned so much from the experience um, mentally and physically, um, and I feel like I'm a lot better prepared for the next opportunity. Um, and it was my first international race, really, so um, to have that start at the Olympic Games is, um, is pretty crazy, but very cool. Mm. And probably a good time to get that start because, you know, the competition comes thick and fast over the next few years with the the delayed Olympics as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Awesome. All right. Well, our topic today is the question, you know, does leaner equal faster? Um, And I guess many runners, cyclists, triathletes would think about that more in terms of, you know, does lighter equal faster maybe than than leaner. Um, But in your running career, is this kind of a a question that you've had to come up against in in one way or another, whether it's, you know, you're... the thought yourself, whether it's you know, coaches or other people, whether it's comments or, or just witnessing it in, in other athletes. I'm guessing you've come across this in, in some way, shape or form. Yeah, so I've got a lot, of, lot to unpack here. Um, <laughs> I guess it kind of starts for me um, being back as a junior um, and seeing my sister suffer from an eating disorder. So she was suffering from um, anorexia and bulimia and that was um, yeah quite challenging to see. And unfortunately, it took her away from the sport um, she was a runner and then a rower um, and I think maybe that lightweight rowing um, kind of concept could have been what really kind of set her off in terms of her um, her eating disorder really taking control of um, of her life um, at that stage. So because I was exposed to that at a young age, um, I must have been 14 or 15, um, I kind of saw it and knew, you know what, that's you don't want that to happen. So I kind of, I knew that that was what could happen if you let um, you know, food become a negative thing and body image and, and eating disorder kind of take over that aspect of your life. Um, so I, I feel grateful in the sense that I was at least exposed to that and saw how negative it can be and kind of almost counteracted that by trying to be really um, healthy and on almost on the other side of just trying to be a little bit more, um, yeah, healthy versus um, undernourished. Um, but it did play, um, you know, havoc on me as well because um seeing that challenge me to have those questions you know should I be lighter you know is this going to be better for me and um plenty of comments on one of my coaches when I was um only 16 17 um called me tubby in front of um, my training group of boys so that Mm. was quite confronting for me and um I was often told that I was um a little bit heavier or I should lose weight or, um, you know, was running well for my size. And I was never big. Like I was just a little, I was just a little soft. Like I was just a normal 16 year old girl. I didn't look like I was, um, I didn't look, you know, ripped and lean or anything like that. I just looked like I was a regular 16 year old girl who, um, you know, probably I, I looked relative to other people small, um, but maybe in the running world, I was, uh, you know, normal looking or softer or whatever you want to call it um and yeah that was challenging and i think that um it did it did um cause me a little bit of um grief internally that i probably didn't show because to me i saw my sister who had an eating disorder and i was like well i don't have an eating disorder like you know i'm fine i'm not anorexic i'm fine um but mentally it probably did play on my mind quite a bit um and when I went to America, uh, unfortunately, the first year and a half was fine. Um, 
well, I, it, I, it challenged me because I went to America and had gone from eating a very healthy diet at home, you know, having parents help me uh, make good choices, going to America where it was, you know, dining hall, or you can eat pizza, pasta, terrible food. Um, and I think I put on like, uh, I was my heaviest in my first year of college there because um, I was just like, I guess, overwhelmed by the amount of food that was on option. Um, and you want to try everything and it's social and it's fun. Um, but then, yeah, I definitely like look back at photos in my freshman year and think, oh, like I definitely got a little bit heavier. I think, um, you know, I'd normally sit around 55 kilos and I was probably up to like 61 at that point. So I was, I was, that was probably the only stage in my life that I was probably a bit heavier than I um, should have been. Um, but, um, you know, I was fine. I was enjoying myself and um, the weight kind of came off in my second year once I was running more. Uh, but once I got to uh, Washington, unfortunately, there was, uh, as it turns out, a pretty bad disordered eating culture on the team. And that was something that um, really, I guess, I struggled with during my time there um, a lot. And it wasn't until my last year that I felt like I really kind of came out of that cycle and was able to um, feel really confident about like who I was and um, my body and um, you know what I needed to eat what I needed to do and that was with the help of having um, a new female coach come in in my last six months Um, but unfortunately yeah during the time um, uh, in those middle years I experienced I lived with a teammate who was suffering from a really bad eating disorder and um, some other mental health issues and you know she was throwing up in our toilet and, um, you know, very underway. And she was eventually actually put into like a, um, I guess like an inpatient um, eating disorder clinic and was unable to run. Um, But while she was running really well, um, my coach actually kind of avoided the situation because, you know, she was doing well. So um, that was really difficult for me because I could see that she was unwell, um, but they were turning a blind eye because she was performing well. Um, until the last meet of the season, the national championships, and we were tipped to be a top two team. And I think we came like 12th in the end because essentially she came last because she crumbled like, and it was just, it was bound to happen, um, unfortunately. And it was so sad to see because obviously I cared about her a lot um, and I cared about my teammates. And um, yeah, it was just a really bad culture to be a part of. And I felt very trapped in that sense. And um, I had conversations in that time where I was told, you're running well for your size. Um, you know, you'd run 30 seconds faster for 5K if you lost 15 pounds. Um, you know, just like terrible things. Um, it was pretty bad looking back at it. And I think that in the moment you you kind of think it's like normal and you, you start to think, oh, I, I should. Like maybe I'm not caring enough about my sport if I'm not like, you know, like I'm getting fitter or leaner or faster. Um, but, yeah, so that's, I guess, <laughs> in a nutshell what I experienced in college and um, I'm not sure if you've got any more specific questions about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And, and it's it's interesting to sort of try and figure out where that culture comes from. I guess there's that kind of old school mentality that lighter equals faster. Yeah. Um, or there's that sort of mathematical concept of looking at the physics and going, well, if you can run like this, this is kind of what you're saying before, like, you know, you're, you're fast for your size sort of thing. It's like, well, if you can run fast at this weight, imagine how fast you could run at this weight, mm-hmm. but not understanding that to get from this weight to this weight, there's a process that goes on and there's physiological changes that might mean that the performance, the power output is not going to be the same at the lighter weight that it was at the heavier weight. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the psychological toll of, of trying to achieve it anyway. 
I think the biggest thing I've, I've learned from kind of going through this experience is, um, you know, if you just like have a conversation, if, we, if a coach had a conversation with me about my nutrition, like they do about sleep or training, then like I'm very open to talk about it in like a way of like, yeah, how can we like get better? Like, you know, what's a healthy way of looking at this? Like, you know, it's like just saying, you know, how, how are you sleeping? How, how are you eating? Like, it's just kind of talking about it like a part of your training. Um, but I think that, yeah, like the whole um, like weight and body image thing just gets so like tied up with so many things that it's like it's a very tricky one to to talk about um and I just I remember just feeling so uncomfortable talking about it and it, it was it was handled inappropriately and, and in the end actually this coach that we had um was essentially fired because of like misconduct um in this sense because of eating disorder culture um that kind of thing um mm. I mean, it was as bad as that we were at practice and, um, you know, come up to us and like grab the side of our waist and be like, oh, yeah, feeling, looking lean. And yeah, it was that whole idea of that, like, you know, like skinnier is faster, like leaner is faster. And like, I definitely thought that. And I like constantly was like in a cycle of trying to lose weight, um, but not being able to sustain it. And then like overcompensating or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was in turmoil for those years, just like feeling like I was should be losing weight or should be lighter and just like hating my body. Um, and you know, I was getting injured. Um, and my bone density was fine. I got it checked in the end, but like I was, did not have a regular cycle. Um, so like I wasn't, I wasn't underweight if you were like, would look at me, but I was probably under fueling at times. Like my fueling was like so up and down and like my periods were so up and down that, um, something was not going well, like not, not working Mm. within my body, um, correctly. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you mentioned that period sort of at the start of your college career where your weight went up a little bit and then periods sort of when you moved to Washington where you're sort of deliberately trying to bring it down. Um, did you notice during those periods, like how did your performance kind of fluctuate through that? Did you notice much difference in terms of when you were heavier versus lighter? Did you, Was your performance much different? Yeah, it's hard to know because I was so – like I did improve. Like from when I left um, – Australia, like I improved my first year in, um, at St. John's and then, you know, I continued to improve um, every year essentially um, throughout my college career. But it was just so up and down like because of the injuries and, and stuff. So mm. it's hard to know. But I think that, yeah, like I, I used to think that I needed to be like, let's say 52 kilos to like be at my race weight. Um, but it turns out like, you know, I've run probably my best time when I'm like 56 or like it, like it doesn't actually, there's no like number that like makes sense. And I yep. think for me, like I, for a long time, like, um, you know, I could weigh myself every day and I'd like try and count my calories and like think it had to be so measured. And now it's like, I haven't weighed myself in like, I, I don't even remember when I weighed myself the last time. And like, I don't count what I eat. Um, and like, I just know, I just like feel when I'm like fit, like when I'm fit, and, um, you know, I saw a post by Brad Beard, I think just this week that was like mm. about the comment, like, you're looking fit. And I've always, yeah, I've always hated that. Like, oh, yeah, you're looking fit. Cause I just think it's so like wrong. Like someone can look so fit and be so unhealthy and someone can not look fit and be really like fast and really healthy. Um, and yeah, I guess I've pr- kind of almost like prided myself in the last couple of years that like, um, no, like I, I don't necessarily look really really lean and fit to some people but like I'm gonna run really well so it <laughs> doesn't matter <laughs> even just last week I was at like an event and someone like was saying oh you're at the Olympics so yeah you're a 5k runner and they're like oh 
yeah, most distance runners look quite gaunt. Like, you don't look gaunt. I'm like, yes, thank you. I'm, I'm very healthy. I'm menstruating. I'm feeling good. Thank yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good response. Love it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so this is, um, I don't think we've mentioned this on the podcast before, Steph, but there's a, a published case study of uh, a 1,500-meter runner, Hilary Stellingworth from Canada, Oh, yeah. And it looks at her body composition sort of tracked over her entire career because her husband, yeah, her husband is, is a sports scientist. Right, yeah. yeah, exactly. So uh, he's sort of collected skinfold data and mm-hmm. obviously all the performance times and everything. And, and it sort of shows that she sort of, as her career went on, she sort of progressively got a bit leaner sort of season on mm-hmm. season, but in a sort of a sustainable way, I guess. Um, but also that her, her weight and her body composition would fluctuate throughout a season. So you yes. know, she sort of hits that kind of ideal quote-unquote body composition around times of major games so the olympics or pan packs commonwealth games whatever it is for those guys do you find that your body composition sort of varies over the course of a season yeah look it probably does um and if i look back on like photos and um even just like you know people that know me really well and like can um i guess say like yeah you, you do look leaner there or whatever um i yeah, I definitely would, as it tends to get to the pointy end of the season, um, start to be a little bit, um, yeah, just a bit leaner or lighter. Um, but I think that one thing for me has been challenging because, um, well, like, I've never had a diagnosed eating disorder, but I've probably struggled with disordered eating um, and that kind of thing, like, throughout a lot of my life. Um, and so, yeah, as I kind of said, I kind of almost, like, went the other way. So I almost didn't, didn't really want to think about it. Like, I I didn't peer peer. Um, periodize my like weight or training like that because um, I just like didn't want to I got so worried that if I was to start thinking about that I'd like go full into that kind of like deep dive of not being healthy Um, so as I've gotten older like now I feel like I'm in a place where I can actually look like yeah like I'm gonna be around here now this is a good way for me to be and then like once it gets you know six weeks out from this major comp like I'm just gonna you know be a little take, take a little more care into like what I'm eating and how much and like make sure that um i'm getting to that kind of like composition that i like need to be to be like prime race time and then probably like as soon as the season's over like top back up again um but yeah it's something that i like haven't really worked on yet but i know that i'm in a place to do it now um but yeah it just took a while for me probably to get into that place where i was like mentally um able to do that in a, in a healthy and sustainable way and not kind of dip into those like negative um behaviors or like thoughts um but having a good chat to someone like jen gregson um at the olympics and afterwards um you know she's very methodical about um you know she is heavier during the year and you know leans up for her kind of um, peak race season and it's just part of the job and Mm. you know i really respect people um you know who can do it like that and be really successful and not try and be an unsustainable way all year round but just know that they have to kind of like you know get their body into that prime prime shape just for a couple of weeks or months in the season um definitely and i think also that point about um getting leaner as you get older too like i think that we just need to um you know respect our growing and maturing bodies um you know when they're going through that like almost like second puberty time and you're like i don't know 18 to 22 um you know when you're in college um your body isn't going to look like um necessarily what a you know 30 year old distance runner looks like because they've had eight more years of training under the belt than you have so you know for me where i'm at even um, now i've only had one year of solid training um uninterrupted whereas you know someone who's had you know eight ten years of you know solid training they're going to be a little bit leaner so um 
yeah, I think it's just a, a something to remember that, you know, it takes years of years of building that base um, to become like the athlete that, that you want to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no doubt you've seen other runners uh, who've gone down that sort of path of, of weight loss for performance. From your experience, have you seen, I mean, obviously there's the ones that end up injured or end up with, you know, disordered eating or other sort of mental health concerns, but even that aside, do you generally see if they go down that path of deliberate weight loss that they it does tra- uh, translate into performance benefits or not necessarily? I think usually there's like a, a short-term life for it. Um, so in the example of like, you know, what I saw in college, like people might come back after one, after, you know, their holiday or um, the break and they might be really um, quite lighter and, you know, look really fit and, you know, they race really well for, um, you know, that that season maybe, maybe that year. Um, but usually from what I've seen, it doesn't last, um, especially at least in female runners. It may be a little bit different um, for, for male runners, but just from my observations of female runners at least, it's like you might have like, yeah, a one season or a one year kind of like upward trend and then like usually it will go back down or plateau at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important message, you know, whether you're a sort of an elite level runner who wants sort of longevity in their career or, yeah. you know, a recreational runner who's just doing it for the enjoyment, who mm-hmm. needs to think about their sort of their health and well-being over the rest of their life, um, yeah. that, you know, regardless of the situation, that's an important point to bear in mind. Absolutely. And for me, like I've always thought, like I love running um, and I would do, I would run every day even if, you know, I wasn't competing. It's just something that I love to do and it's who I am. Um, and for me, like I've definitely had to remind myself in those times when I've like maybe wanted to dip down that path of like, let's like just lose heaps of weight and see if I have, you know, I want to have a really good season. It's like, I would prefer to have 10 consistent seasons than one really amazing season that I like pull something incredible out and then no one hears from me again. So, um, Mm. yeah, definitely consistency and like longevity, um, definitely is, is what I'm aiming for. And I hope that what, um, yeah, more athletes will aim for instead of just, you know, one, one good race or one good season, Mm. it's just not worth it. Better to have a, a long career and enjoy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking to Scotty Hawker, who's an ultra runner, um, a few weeks ago, and, and he was saying the same thing more about in terms of how many ultra marathons you could run in a year. But I think in terms of that sort of potential weight cycling that some people attempt, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. Like you don't want to come out of that three years from now and just either not be able to run because you're so injured or mm. hate running and never want to do it again. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, obviously, we've talked about sort of that culture around, um, you know, weight and weight cycling and, and body image and that kind of thing. Obviously, you've sort of experienced that at that, um, that college level. Thinking about it more at that sort of elite level now, and obviously, you know, people are kind of a bit more separate in terms of their training and what they're doing and things and not necessarily living with each other. But do you still get the sense that that culture is pervasive even at that level? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like one of the... Um one of the things I remember realizing when I was um, in college towards the end was that, you know, if you look at a start line at the college level, you will see a lot of underweight girls. You know, I was not overweight and I was one of the heavier, stronger looking runners, whatever you want to call it. Um, but if you look at a start line of an elite race, um, you know, at the Olympics or, um, you know, any kind of, yeah, um, professional distance runners, um, yeah, they're like, they're lean and they're fit. And like, you know, look at someone like Emma Coburn, like super incredibly fit and lean, but like they are strong women. Like they are not little girls, you know, who are about to break. Like, um, so it kind of made me realize that 
people might be able to sustain this like in college but if you want to actually make it in the long term and in like professional elite running um you need to be like yes strong so it's, it's a very different look on the start line of that kind of like college versus professional race um and i think that um it's evident in the culture of kind of um professional elite running um it's yeah a lot more about like fueling your body looking after yourself like recovering um there's definitely not as much of an eating disorder um culture that i've found compared to like the college atmosphere uh it's still there at times though like i think whenever you get a group of girls together um women um you know there's definitely um a few concerns that you can kind of feel um pe- people might have but it's yeah definitely not um anything like what i what i experienced in college mm. it's, yeah, it's a lot more calculated too because people think of running as like their job and while they may love it too um it's just like like like, like i said about jen like you know she just she knows what she needs to do um and mm. you know it gets it done yeah, yeah, I was going to say, so it's, it, I mean, it could be for a few reasons. It could be that kind of realisation that once you get through the college system, if I want to stay here, you know, this isn't sustainable kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, it could be that the, I guess, the support people around you are not um, as much of a problem. I don't know whether that's mm-hmm. true or not. Um, mm-hmm. Or it could be that essentially, you know, college kind of weeds out the people and it's only the ones that survive, quote unquote, yeah. that can make it. So, you know, it could be all three of those. Probably factors. all three, yeah. And also I think just, um, yeah, yeah, definitely the, the support team around you too um, changes and, you know, that they, they want your best interests for you. Um, you know, in college, you're very replaceable. If you don't run well, it's okay. We'll have someone else take your spot. Um, but, you know, once you're in, in this kind of level, um, you know, the people around you are really invested in, like, in you. Um, and, like, you know, if you get injured or something happens to you, like, there's no one to, like, replace you. Um, and it's usually, like, smaller teams and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, you're not just a number. You are you are valued, I guess, for a little more than, more than that, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess the flip side to that is thinking about maybe the recreational um, running community, but I guess you could, you know, extrapolate that to cycling or triathlon, for example, as well. Um, obviously, from your interactions with the recreational running community in Adelaide, do you still feel as there's, there's that culture of, you know, lighter equals better and we should all try and lose weight leading into our half marathon or our marathon or our fun run that we're doing? Yeah, I'm not too sure. I mean, yeah, I coach a recreational running group called Runners One, and we've got about 200 um, runners that we coach actually. Um, so I'm around them a lot, and I haven't really noticed that um, too much, all too often. You know, that's the occasional outlier um, that you see. But um, yeah, I mean, it's more just kind of I think the way that we need to change, like the commentary that we have around it. I think people make some comments that um, there's not a lot to it. They don't really mean it in that sense, but it's just normal of like saying, like the whole comment of like, you're looking fit, like, um, you know, like maybe if there's a race around the corner, someone says, you know, oh, I better stop eating the chocolate. Like it's mm. just, it's more just kind of that general sense of how we talk about things, um, um, whether it's in a, in, a, in a recreational runner or an elite runner and just try to move that, um, language away a little bit into a more positive, more positive way that's um, yeah healthy. Yep, yep. But yeah, I, ha- I haven't seen too much. I think there's always issues, um, and I think that yeah, whatever level you're at, you know, people are people can be dealing with all sorts of issues. Um, you know, they t- they take their running as seriously. Um, some people was you know running the Olympics or running you know a marathon or doing a triathlon. Like it's all relative to what you're doing, um, and I I recognise that absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, now you have a, a psychology degree and you're currently doing a, a PhD and you're sort of researching in that area of eating disorders. Is that something that's come about because of your 
like your, your interest in that area has come about because of you know your past experience with your sister or what you've witnessed through sort of the college system has that kind of shaped the the pathway that you've you've gone down yeah definitely so yeah i did my when i was in america i did my undergraduate um degree in psychology and my honors um there which was on uh, mindfulness at the time um which i really enjoyed and i did start a combined phd and masters early this year but unfortunately i've made the decision just recently to step away from my study for now mm-hmm. um just to focus on my running um i never would have thought i'd make the olympics this year and sign a professional contract and um, be traveling the world and it's just kind of for me um been a pretty tough decision really because i love um I love psychology and I, you know, really interested in this whole area. Um, and the research I was going to be doing that I'd started on was definitely um, very meaningful to me. Um, but unfortunately, I just <laughs> was burning myself out and I might step back into it um, in the next few years after the next Olympic cycle. But for now, yeah, I'm going to focus on um, doing what I'm doing. And I'm very lucky that um, through my sport, I feel like I kind of achieved my goal of inspiring other people to be healthier and happier and hope to be a role model um, to younger girls and, and boys too, um, you know, as what a healthy athlete can look like. Um, but definitely very interested in, in looking into the psychology of it in the future too. But, yeah, the reason I was interested in that area um, is just because, you know, my experience – um, with my sister and, you know, in college, seeing how prevalent eating disorders were. Um, the work I was going to be doing in my PhD was just more like clinical, though not sports-specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to work in a more sports-specific role um, one day because it's something that I just, yeah, feel like I know a lot about and, um, yeah, I just know how, yeah, prevalent eating disorders can be in especially, you know, young girls in this sport. Um, so anything I can do to kind of like – help that would be awesome yeah Yeah, but i think a lot more people are talking about it now and that that definitely helps just like talking about it and you know sharing stories and um i think you you know you see on social media these days um there's a lot of people being open about their struggles and what helped them get through it and that sort of thing which i think is really awesome because it it gives um yeah the younger generation an opportunity to to learn from people's past experiences and to see maybe what not to do and what might be a good way to to move forward with it Mm, yeah absolutely in um in 2020 you founded a a running group which you just mentioned um and a a coaching service which is called run as one um with your um i believe he's maybe a co-coach um for you and your partner riley cox um who i know is a bloody incredible (laughs) one himself um and i believe his brother um can you tell us a bit about um about this and sort of what what influenced you both to kind of develop this group um i hear really fantastic stories about how it's progressing in adelaide oh thank you yeah so it's um an interesting one last year in covid um actually it was just um riley's um boss wanted to get some kind of coaching advice he was looking at doing some events and my mum was also running and they were running together and it kind of just started from two and then it was you know a few more family friends riley's mum Jacob, Riley's brother's girlfriend, you know, it was just a handful of people we knew. Um, and suddenly, you know, a couple of, a month maybe into it, it was 20 people. And then, you know, people that we didn't really know wanted to come out and we kind of formalized things. I think we started the group in about June last year and then we formalized things in August with the name Runners One. Um, previously, it was just Riley's Runners. Um, and then, yeah, like it just kind of grew. My, 
I couldn't believe, um, I think by January 1st, we had 100 people and then now we've got over 200 um, runners in our community. So it's really grown and it's come from like a hobby that we had absolutely no kind of plan for into a business that Riley's essentially working like full-time on in in his coaching role. And um, yeah, it's very exciting for us to have something that we love so much that we're so passionate about to put our energy and time into and to give back to, you know, other people who love running as much as we do. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, And so I guess now just sort of summarising what we've talked about, which has been a a massive, a massive amount and really um, interesting. Thinking back on your journey in in the sport today, is there anything you know now about the link between body composition, performance and the process of getting there that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your career? Yeah, I guess I just, I wish that I knew um, that, you know, lighter doesn't mean faster. Um, It might for a really short term, um, but in the long term, it doesn't. Um, I guess if I could tell myself that as my 16 year old self, I would love to and save a lot of um, heartache and disappointment and, you know, frustration, um, I guess, you know, self-loathing through those years. So yeah, I wish I could go back and just, you know, remind myself, um, that that's the case also that you know everyone is different like you can't look at someone and think oh what they're doing has worked for them so it's going to work for me um we're all such different people with like different bodies um different fueling needs um you know different psychological needs so just to make sure that you know you're not comparing what you're doing whether that's um your plate of food or your training really or anything to someone else one of the things I struggled with a lot is that um, at Washington, we were so lucky to have this wonderful dining hall where we all ate together. But it meant that I was eating my dinner every night, you know, with my teammate of girls. And, you know, you feel like if someone's eating a bit less, you probably should eat a little bit less or um, that kind of thing. And you start to really plan your mind when you have that comparison game. Um, so, yeah, just reminding myself that um, what you're doing is right, is right for you doesn't have to be right for someone else. Mm, yeah. And is it um, – is there not – any sort of nutrition support or, or dietitian or anything in that sort of the, the college environment that you were in that that um I don't know was was supportive was yeah yeah there was everything every college has like a dietitian um and a psychologist but um unfortunately I think they're like um they're reactive measures like if something's wrong then like you know then you might go see the dietitian or see the psychologist um i would love to see especially in colleges a little more like proactive um care in terms of like um well-being both um nutrition and psychological kind of well-being Uh, i think that could could help a lot just having more um and maybe they have been like i've been out of college for over two years now so um i can't speak for what what they're doing now but um yeah i think just having a little bit more of a proactive um treatment sense would be really helpful in that in that regard and did you find any like for you along your career now have you found that getting some nutrition support yourself has that been useful have you been have you seeked that or yeah so I haven't really and that's probably just because um running is a funny one because you know you're not on a team and um you know for a long time when I first came back to Adelaide like I was not part of sassy I was Mm. not you know I was just doing a lot on my own like doing gym for my house here like Mm. um you know and it can be quite daunting to you know fork out money to see a lot of different providers you know physio Mm. massage dietitian all those things so I probably didn't um yeah 
do a ton of that to start with. Um, I'm lucky now that I am, um, you know, under the sassy banner and I've got access to a dietitian. Um, I haven't actually been able to utilize it yet because um, I've only been back for such a short time. But it's one thing that I'm definitely looking at doing. I mean, I got a blood test done today just as a um, kind of a proactive measure just to check where I'm at, see what my iron's at, if I'm lacking in anything that I need to kind of address before the season picks up again. Um, And I hope to go through that kind of blood profile with my um, sports dietitian and, yeah, make a bit of a fueling plan in terms of that too. Um, But, yeah, it's so helpful to have someone who can kind of give you that advice um, that's specific to you and your sport um, and yeah definitely something that um, I probably should have invested in earlier but definitely going to get on top of that now. Well thank you very much for um, yeah sharing sharing all of that I know some of that's very you know kind of um, close to the heart and yeah, um, yeah um, but really will be really really helpful for our for our listeners um, for sure. Um, I would like to, though, now get into something a bit exciting just to get to know a little bit more <laughs> about about you. Um, so we've got kind of five quick questions for you, Izzy. Sounds um, good. So I'll fire them off. If you could do anything besides what you're doing now, which it sounds like you're absolutely loving right now, what would it be? Oh, good question. I guess I'd have to say studying my master's and PhD in psychology because Essentially, it's not something I can do right now, I've realised. Um, and that's kind of like the second part of my life that I, I see myself in. So if I wasn't running right now, I'd definitely be doing that. Awesome. And favourite moment from either the Olympics or the Paralympics besides, obviously, your experience of, of competing there? Oh, there were so many, but I think um, actually watching the high jump was probably my favourite. Um, I got to watch the men's high jump where they shared the gold medal and it was just so beautiful to see, like, how happy they both were and, like, the sportsmanship of them realising that they could both get a gold medal and share it together. Um, It was incredible. The Italian guy, like, he was just so full of energy and it was just – it was such a show to watch the whole event Um, and pretty cool that, like, Brandon was so close to He was fifth in such an amazing jump. Um, So, yeah, the high jump – men's high jump was a very cool one to watch and that gold medal moment, uh, yeah, very cool. Mm, that's what I said when Steph asked me. As yeah. well. my, my wife was a high jumper, so we, we watched oh, that. Wow. And, and I think yeah. the, the thing for me was not only that, but then afterwards, I think the men's 100 final was run shortly after yes. that. Yeah. And so yeah. the Italian guy who won the high jump was still running around with an Italian flag when the other guy crossed the finish line and he basically ran straight into him and they were carrying on. It was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. that whole night of athletics. I, I almost didn't even go to the track for that night because I was still feeling pretty disappointed by my own race and um, I was figuring out when I was leaving and waiting to get flights and um, I'm glad that I got on the bus and went to the track because it was an epic night of track and field and, yeah, I was very grateful to be right up close and able to watch it live. Yeah, awesome. Um, and what's a, what's a message that you want to perhaps promote to runners? Oh, so many. Such a good one. Um, Yeah, I guess, I mean, I've said it a little bit previously, but just um, do what's right for you. Um, Doesn't have to be what's right for anyone else. Yeah, focusing on um, what you need to do and making sure that, you know, um, it's your journey that you're on, not someone else's. Um, So really just staying true to yourself. Good one. And something you can't live without apart from, of course, your partner, Riley. <laughs> I lived without him for three months. It was all right. <laughs> no, I love him dearly. Um, what's one thing I couldn't live without? Oh, so many things. I mean, probably my running shoes or, or my chorus watch. 
two things I couldn't live without and my phone too. It's three. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, and do you yourself live by any sort of piece of advice or, or motto? So, you know, you've said that one um, before, but is there, is there another one that um, you live by? Uh, I think, um, well, most recently I've been really um, just reminding myself how important it is to like enjoy the journey and it's definitely like a cliché saying um but for me it really rung true um at the olympics um achieving such a lifetime goal becoming an olympian running the olympics but realizing that like there's no like one pot of gold at the end of that kind of um moment um and so if you're not enjoying the journey that gets you there then what's really the point and for me i'm super lucky that i do enjoy the journey of running i love training i love the hard days i love you know the good days i love traveling i love making new friends and um all that goes with it so um, but yeah, definitely just reminded me that you need to enjoy the journey. And um, that's one thing that, you know, recently making a decision what to do the next few years in terms of my study and my career, um, just making sure that, you know, I, I was going to be able to actually enjoy the journey because at the end of the day, if you get the piece of paper for the degree, um, but you hated every second of it because you were so busy and you weren't sleeping and you were trying to really run a business and run professionally and, you know, but, you know, what's the point really? Um, so for me, it's just been um, really sticking to that, like enjoy the journey, enjoy the process um, and do what makes you happy because um, what makes you happy might not make someone else happy too, but that doesn't really matter um, because at the end of the day, like only really you care about what you're doing more than anyone else. So um, you have to be happy with the decisions you make. Yeah, well said. Hmm. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Izzy. Uh, as Steph said, I think it's a, um, a great discussion and I think some really interesting points and I think aligns really nicely with uh, our previous episode with Gary Slater, who sort of talked about that more from the, the scientific point of view in terms mm -hmm. of that relationship between uh, body composition and, and performance. So yeah, thanks so much for your time. Hopefully you enjoy a little bit of downtime post-Olympics, uh, post-hotel quarantine, etc. And uh, yeah, good luck for the year ahead. Thanks so much for having me on. That was even better than I thought it would be, Alan, even though I thought it was going to be magnificent um, for a number of reasons because she's a magnificent athlete and because she comes from Adelaide. <laughs> uh, you had to wax lyrical about the trails in Adelaide at the start, didn't you? <laughs> You're missing them. I am. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, a friend of mine actually moved to Adelaide. He's a cyclist, and and all as I hear is about how great the cycling is in Adelaide. Every single time I talk to him, it's like Norton Summit this and Corkscrew that, and exactly. yeah, exactly. He knows it is. It's yeah. so bloody good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so we we've, we've been fortunate enough to have um, you know Gary um, Slater on um, in twenty three A. And now Izzy um, talking about does uh, Lena equal faster? So um, can you, I guess, summarise what we've learned from from these two um, two chats? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I guess there's, I guess, a couple of different ways you can think about this. You know, Lena in terms of you know 
body fat versus muscle or leaner as in physically lighter, you know, less kilos on the scale. Uh, and as, as Gary pointed out last week, if you go and put a weighted vest on, and I think this is how a lot of people think about it, you know, they think, well, if I had a weighted vest on that's 10 kilos and I suddenly took that off and I'm 10 kilos lighter, how much better am I going to run? It's going to be amazing. Uh, or, you know, riding a bike uphill and that kind of thing. And yes, there will be certainly some effect of that, um, mm. particularly, you know, in the, the immediate term, if you were suddenly to lose that much weight. Um, obviously, in a sport like cycling, where you're going up a hill, um, you know, people are you know, at the elite level losing weight for a reason. So there, there is clearly an effect against gravity. But as Gary pointed out, the problem is, um, you know, lighter is okay if you if your power is still adequate. So if you're not losing uh, the ability to, to perform um, and that's because either you're losing muscle along the way from the, the energy deficit that you have to go into to, to achieve that leaner physique or lighter weight, um, or uh, you're underfueling your training. So you're actually not training as effectively as you were before because you're trying to cut back on what you're eating um, or potentially not recovering and adapting to training as well. So I guess that's the, the, the first point would be that, you know, Yes, lighter may be better for some people in some situations. Uh, clearly, if you're carrying, you know, 10 or 20 kilos of body fat that, you know, you can healthily remove, then yes, you would go a bit faster. But um, it's, I guess, how you achieve that that might um, lead you astray in terms of, you know, performing poorly in training. Um, or uh, as we'll hear about next week, um, some of the issues about underfueling your training and, and what some of the health and performance consequences of that are in addition to just your training and recovery. Um, I guess when it gets a bit more of a grey area is when you've got someone who's already reasonably lean, yeah. but they just wonder whether they need to get even leaner again. Um, and that's certainly, I guess, what Izzy talked about today. Um, so we're not talking so much sort of recreational athletes now, but more at the, the pointy end of the field where they think, oh, you know, if I was just one or two kilos lighter, I might be that little bit faster. Um, but often, you know, things start to go astray when that happens, either for performance reasons, for physical health reasons, uh, or as Izzy talked about as well, you know, mental health reasons as well. So, um, so yes, lighter can be faster, but it's certainly no guarantee. Um, and, you know, ultimately, uh, what you look like or what your body composition is is not your performance. You know, they don't hand out medals at the Olympics for the person with the lowest skin faults um, or with the, the best-looking physique. Uh, they're handed out based on performance. And at the end of the day, you know, whatever body composition is optimal for performance is optimal for performance, regardless of how lean or not that is. Yep. Mm. Um, this topic, Steph, does remind me actually an article I wrote. Uh, I just looked it up before back in 2012, which is making me feel pretty old actually, <laughs> almost a decade ago. But it was around this this exact topic and it was the attitudes to nutrition, weight, health and performance among professional cyclists. So um, I was doing a lot of writing for cycling tips at the time uh, and we got one of the, the journos who was doing some work with them to go out and interview a bunch of pro athletes, some specific questions that I'd given him. Uh, and then sort of collected all the different responses and then we made some commentary around it. Um, but one of the questions that we asked them was, you know, did you feel that your weight loss ever went too far in your professional career? Uh, and we had a couple of cyclists uh, here. Um, all three of them are actually retired now, but, you know, one of them, um, Bernie Eisel, who's a, an Austrian cyclist, um, said, yes, you know, you, you start losing power if you lose too much weight. 
um, especially when you start to lose weight in the last minute. So if you try and sort of crash diet your way down uh, to, you know, quote unquote race weight in an awful hurry. And he said, you know, you need to learn over the years what you need. And for me, it's better to have that extra kilo or two at the start of a grand tour. So, you know, you tour de France or you Giro d'Italia. Uh, and then you've got your one day classics where you're doing over 200 kilometers. And he said in those races, you could really notice the lack of power if you've lost too much weight, you get tired. Uh, and then he said, you know, and then you need to start analyzing, you know, did I train too much? Was I too skinny? Um, and it's extra motivation for some riders to be on race weight. Um, and it's an extra drive for them, but sometimes that can cause problems. Uh, and if you start losing muscle mass and losing power, that can be an issue. Um, one of the others said, you know, um, in his first couple of years as a pro, he was probably a few kilos under what he found to be his ideal weight by the end of the season. Um, and he was, you know, about five kilos less, but he wasn't actually going any faster um, and, you know, probably less resilient. Um, and he might have gone up hills just as well, but on the flat, he wasn't as good. And he learnt over the years, um, you know, where his sort of ideal body composition was for him. And it wasn't as, as light as necessarily what he could get. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really good um, example that, you know, Lena is not always better, even in a sport like cycling where you've got to ride up mountains, you can actually go too lean to the point where you start to have problems. Yeah. Yeah. I um, recently saw the um, social media um, post by um, a elite um, marathon runner, Kara Goucher, if I, hopefully I've said her name correctly. Um, and she she posted um, a picture of herself in um, when she was running the New York Marathon uh, in 2008. Um, and yeah, some of her comments are just like, if you look closely, <clears throat> you'll see I have skin hanging over the side of my shorts. There's cellulite on my butt, and there are no rock hard abs on my stomach. Yet that day, I ran 2:25:53. I placed third. And I became the first American on the podium since 1994. I set the American course record by a minute, which still stands today. Um, and this was absolutely the fittest I was in my life. So that's just showing you, yeah. Um, and she unfortunately must have um, read that day when she posted this Um she wrote, today I read yet another article about a coach weighing and body shaming women. So um, saying that the numbers tell him how to coach um, and, yeah, she's just, you know, tired of, of that kind of narrative um, and, um, yeah, hopefully there's um, a bit more of a push and a movement to, to try and, um, try and, try and um, prevent and limit and stop um, yeah. that type of culture um, going in sport. Yeah, absolutely. And she talked about the fact that she knows so many women with PTSD and lifelong eating disorders due to the comments that some of their coaches have made. And, you know, we heard some examples from Izzy today about, uh, you know, another another coach. Uh, and unfortunately, it's still far too prevalent. Mm, yep. Yep. Mm. Unfortunately, it is. Um, and I think as well, like you need a, well, yeah, it's it's also when you're tackling that issue with a, with an athlete, um, it's really important to have um, a team approach about it as well. Um, because too often I've seen where um, you know one maybe allied health professional or professional may be concerned, but then they're not 
backed up and supported by um, by others surrounding, and then that can make it really hard to um, to navigate that area. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good segue, Steph, for uh, next week's episode, which is mm. episode 24A. And the question is really the follow-on from this one is, can I underfill my training? Um, so we've obviously talked about, you know, is leaner faster and um, not necessarily, and the issue is, you know, potentially underfueling. So, you know, how does that work? How does it happen? What are the consequences? Um, so who have we got next week to discuss this? We have um, the lovely Margot um, Ryan, Nee Rogers, uh, and, um, yeah, Margot um, studied or did started her PhD um, at the AIS in, in Canberra um, and she's, she's come back to us, Alan. She's now in, in Melbourne. Um, and, uh, yeah, we thought no one better because um, this was part of her PhD topic um, was, looking, was looking at this very question. So um, we're really lucky to have Margot on board. Yep, absolutely, and always great to have ex-Monash students return and talk to us mm-hmm. about this stuff. And Not that she's returned to Monash, but she's back in Melbourne and good to see that you know, going off and, and doing awesome things at the AIS and um, University of Canberra. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today, Steph. So if anyone does have a question that they'd like answered, you can hit us up on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Um, or if you're on Apple Podcasts, if you're happy enough to click the little five-star rating button, that would be very handy for us. Or even if you want to leave a review, we'd love that as well. Uh, and love just to hear any general feedback about the podcast but other than that Steph I think we'll leave everyone to it Uh, enjoy your week everyone happy long weekend out of lockdown for those people in Melbourne uh, as your Mm. lockdown lifts a step further on Friday and we've got a four-day weekend and um, yeah we'll see everyone next week see everyone